Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 13. That's what we just sang. Psalm 13 to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully. Father, we pray that Your words would minister to Your saints as they have ministered to Your people for thousands of years now. May we be honest in faith about the Christian experience and the Christian life before You. And may You give us faith, endurance, hope, help, strength, for anyone here who may be more particularly than another, this psalm, may you bless them with your word. Strengthen their heart. May you nourish them. Seek you. Help me consider your people well. I bring this. Amen. Well, Psalm 13 is a psalm of David. And um, we're not going to try to pin down the specific occasion of this psalm. We don't have any specific data on that. So everything would be speculation and a guess game. Um, But what we know of King David is, is he was a man constantly tried. He was a man in frequent battles, and frequent conflicts, frequent calamities, frequent life-threatening trials, frequent efforts to overthrow his reign, Saul hunting him, Absalom, his son, stealing the hearts of the people and raising up a kingdom, an army to overthrow David, his father, the curses of Shimei, the grief of his, the sins of his children, the consequence of his own sins. I mean, what we know is that David had a consistent, amassed amount of trial that would go on and on and on. And so, all we need to understand is that it is clear that Uh, A number of the calamities, a number of whatever these trials are that David is having to endure. He's he's in a point where this has been going on for some time. David was no coward. David wasn't a soft man. The first little bump uh, that he didn't like about something in life didn't cast him into despair. Right? 
like men today, the first little bump just throws us into panic and anxiety. Strong men are not like that. David was not like that. That's, this psalm doesn't apply to that. This is uh, a buildup of the nature of what is in the heart of every Christian, every Christian, um, when things have been difficult, challenging, hard, sorrowful for a while. And at this point, David is full of fear and sorrow. He's full of it. He's despairing. He distresses. He fears that this distress that he's currently under will actually end his life. And here's the thing. It's important that when we look at the Psalms that we understand that our experience is the same as his. Just the same. The heart of man has always asked the same questions under relentless suffering. So, I kind of outlined it a little bit like this. In verses 1 and 2, that's how I feel. Verses 3 and 4, this is what I need from you, Lord. In verse 5 and 6, this is why I know it'll all be okay. The first thing I want to say is this. At this point, David turns to the Lord. How long, O Lord? How long, Yahweh, my covenant-keeping God? And there's a difference between the way the world sorrows and a way that a Christian sorrows. There's a difference between the way the world experiences endless griefs when they pile up and pile up and pile up over a period of time than the way someone who doesn't know the Lord suffers these griefs. And the difference is faith. The difference is faith. And so, it's important that you remember and you consider David's complaint here at the beginning of Psalm 13 that um, that question that David is asking is a question that's motivated by David's faith. Now, a lot, of, a lot of churches where you have come from and where I came from, the way they kind of have treated these realities in Scripture, and the way some of you have kind of treated these realities in Scripture, if you think carefully about yourselves, um, is that, see how faithless David is here? Now, David's at this really low point. And at this really low point, David doesn't have faith. And what we need to do is be the kind of people who can go through the same kinds of things, but do them differently than David and do them better than David and do them with actual faith. Because if we had actual faith, then these kinds of things, these kinds of complaints to God, would not be the kind of complaints that would arise. 
in our hearts and lives. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And they maybe wouldn't use those words. But the moment you're downcast, they would just tell you to just get better. You know? That's what it would sound like. It would sound more, it would feel like that, or sound like that. Or they would just give you, or they would be like this, wrong with you. And they wouldn't say that to you either, but that's how you would feel. They think about you. And it's important that you understand that that is entirely nonsense in the experience of the Christian life, and it's just not true. It's just not true. It's good in churches that don't want to have to deal with reality. But if you understand reality, and you're not living a pipe dream of a plastic, Christianized church society, then... What you have to understand is that when David starts asking these questions, these are sparks of his faith. These are sparks of his faith. And so he turns to the Lord. The very turning to the Lord, the very question itself directed to the Lord, actually is the sparks of faith. David does what a confessing what a Christian does who confesses his faith from deep sorrows. He turns to the Lord. He inquires with honesty about his experience. The question he asks, how long? How long? Now, if you have a difficulty that arises, one of the questions that we'll, you'll ask is, why me? Why this? That is one question you'll ask. When the trial lasts for a period of time and days of grief or days of loneliness or days of conflict or days of sickness turn into months and months and months and months and sometimes years, days of thinking about your children and where they're at and their need of Christ and His salvation, all of the, when, when, it, when it, it endures, then the, the main question of the Christian's heart is how long, O oh Lord? How long? You know, sorrows always last longer than joys, don't they? Even just a boring day seems to take forever, let alone months of sorrow. Spurgeon said it like this. He said, um, a week in a prison, far longer than a month at liberty. I imagine when going through the kinds of trials that pile upon themselves and continue, where there's no relief and there's no what seems to be no divine aid. Seems to be no deliverance from them. Seems to be no end in sight. It's a bit like walking through uh, a narrow cave in pure cave darkness and having no light, moving only at a snail's pace. Because that's all the 
faster it feels like you can move as you feel every little step and every handhold to kind of climb your way through it. And there's no end in sight and there's no light to signal the end. And the question in that moment you're going to be wrestling with is how long is this cave? When will the end be? That's where David's at. And so he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? See, when you're right there, the heart of man always, always feels as though God has abandoned him. Always feels as though God has forgotten him. Will you forget me forever? Will you bring no divine aid? Do you see how severe is my affliction? Then he says, how long will you hide your face from me? In the song that was uh, poetically described as, will we talk no more together? Will you hide your face from me? It's very, very personal. You know? It's as if David had this closeness with God, but enduring trials have brought David to the place where he wonders if he'll ever behold that closeness with God again. So personal. How long? How long will it be before my spirit's revived in your presence? And then he says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? and have sorrow in my heart all the day. Now when he says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? What happens to you when you're distressed? What happens to you when you're distressed? What happens to you is you think and plan and think and plan and question and wonder and think and plan and wonder and question all for the purpose of trying to find some relief from the distress. All that you hear inside your head is your own thoughts rambling on and on and on about what is going to be the thing that can bring you relief. When I was, I've had a couple kidney stones, and if you've never had a kidney stone, I hope you never have one. The pain of a kidney stone, most people don't understand, is actually a pain in your back on either side, depending on where the kidney stone is. And I'm a big man, but a kidney stone has taken me down like into fetal position and practically tears it so painful. And what do you think when I'm in the pain of that kind of ailment? What do I do? I remember when it first happened, and I'd never had this happen before, but I woke up in the morning with this pain, and, and what am I doing? I'm like, like moving around. I'm like, this hurts, what is this? And you know, and you start to kind of try to find a way to see if you can get some relief from it. You know? And when it's at its worst point, you're trying to get relief, somehow a fetal position seems like the thing that will give you relief. And that's all your body is consumed with, is how can I get some relief from this particular distress, this pain? And that's exactly the way our soul is. When we take when we are in this level of distress and darkness, 
All we do is take counsel in all of our thoughts constantly going, how can I get out of this? When will this end? And what can I do to make it end sooner? That's what's happening with David. How long must I take counsel in my soul? How can I get relief from this? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Have you ever been in a place where you know what it is to say, how long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? And not just one day. Two days, then ten days, then twenty days. And Gotta be a way to get rid of this sorrow that goes on without end. Feels. So he feels as if he's abandoned. His heart is full of sorrow. And then he asks this additional question, which may be the heart of the rest of his experience is, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, one comment about that, David, is, David definitely has in mind um, people in this, in, in this psalm. He definitely has in mind people, but it doesn't only apply like that. Because if you think about what your enemies are, and what God, your enemies are God's enemies. And your enemy is the effect of the work of the enemy which is sin and death. Everything that comes with the curse of sin in many ways becomes an enemy to you. And so it applies very broadly, but David definitely has in mind people here. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long shall godless men triumph over the godly? How long shall wicked men triumph over Christ's church? How long will wicked men have happiness all their days while I have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will wicked men prosper in the United States of America and, the, uh, and his church suffer for it? How long will godless men be promoted over me in the workplace? How long will godless men destroy families? How long will they steal kingdoms with blood? I just have to tell you, I am so proud of our church. 
I am so proud of our church. When we planted the church, I never had any idea how significant Jesus' words were when he said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. And I never knew how significant the words were. You know, he who does not hate father and mother, brother, sister, children, is not more than me, is not worthy of me. And I'm so proud of our church because it's like endless conflict with family. Endless conflict. And you know the way conflict with family works. It never goes away. It never goes away. How could it go away? When you are in conflict with your family for the sake of Christ, and these are people you love. I mean, how could that go? And so what it does is it carries on through time. And sometimes your family is your enemy. I feel that. No, Rachel's family gets together and we're not there. Or wife. And the way it always works is the godless flock together. The godless flock together. And the godless always side with the godless. Just how it works. The godless side with the godless and cast out the godly. Wasn't it this way with our Lord? The godless mob together crucifying him? Wasn't it this way with our Lord when his own family gathered together in godlessness, calling him, saying he was out of his mind? But the godless always side with the opinion of the godless, and they cast out the godly. And the experience of that is that my enemies are being exalted over me. Everything is fine and well with them, but it's not with me. Think about Think about the effect of Roe v. Wade in our land. Fortunately, I can't give a full talk about that right now, but how many Christians have felt the weight of this question thinking about abortion? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long will the godless Remain with the godless, being the mob against innocent life.
then I think, how long will the church continue to capitulate everything, every fault line where the culture puts pressure on them and they might suffer? How long? How long at every fault line will the church stop? Because they know there's a cross cross of Christ right on the other side of that very line and capitulate. How long? I don't know, but their churches grow faster than ours do. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? So what is that fault line right now? Well, here's where I think the fault line is in regards to Roe v. Wade, and of course, you're probably all aware of the majority opinion and it um, likely being overturned. First of all, let me say this. The sanctity of life is not going to increase immediately once a court decision. The court decision is not going to all of a sudden change the hearts of men. We need the court decision. It's a good thing. Very good thing. But let's also not kid ourselves about the reality that somehow everything's going to change. And so what's happening now is one of, you know, some of the bigger, uh, heavily Catholic, but this, in this fight, this fight on abortion, we need to work with the Catholics at some level. We have a far better gospel than they do. But we need to work with them at the political level. And what's happening in like the national right to life, which has been boasting that there are 70 pro-life organizations across the United States that are all united on this one point. They're celebrating that Roe v. Wade to come to an end. And then they are just hell-bent, right at the fault line. This is the fault line. They're hell-bent, right at the fault line, to ensure that no woman who ever murders her son or daughter ever experiences any penalty of any kind, and that they only be treated as if they are victims. That's the fault line. And it's hard to have hope that, that, that anything other than that mentality is actually going to win the day. Even though the law restrains you. Even though the law teaches people what is good when there is good laws in place. The more the laws are in line with Scripture, the more it actually teaches people what is good, and it actually restrains evil. And God uses it in common grace to restrain evil in our land. And... That's the fault line. I just think we have a greater penalty for someone who's got a bag of weed under their car seat. We have a greater penalty for 
somebody who smashes turtle eggs. Climb up to an eagle's nest and take a selfie of you killing its young and put it on Facebook. And yet when it comes to killing human life, made in the image of God and of most importance in this world, they're all victims. They're all victims. Now, it's not all just a, don't hear me saying that what I'm, there's just, you know, one way to handle every case. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to give you the point. There would be all kinds of variants treatment of women and on the basis of intent and circumstances surrounding all of it and who's, who's pressuring to them to go there and are they being abused on the way. And I mean, there would just be endless amounts of questions that case law would have to deal with, to deal with carefully, to administer justice precisely. That's what should be done. I'm not the one creating the general rule that everything must be followed by. The ones doing that is the national right to life's message that only treat it as victims and prosecute the abortionists. That is our position, and we do not waver from it. Is there any case? I was talking with Esteban and Joel and about this, and Esteban said, well, I mean, all you have to do is look at who's parading right now to see that they're not all victims. Have we lost our minds that a woman actually can have murderous intent to her baby and that is actually something that happens in the heart of man? Yes, have. So you just think, how long will our enemies be exalted over us? Of course, do I think it will have good effect? Do I think there will be more babies? Fair to absolutely. Absolutely. And that means we've got a lot of work to do. Love women. How long? How long shall wicked men rule with wicked laws that oppress the righteous? So David turns from this is how I feel about this whole thing in his complaint to God. His complaint with faith to this is what I need. Consider and answer me. In other words, Draw near and do a work that will deliver me from what I'm facing right now. Don't hide your face from me. Don't forget me forever. 
Consider and answer me. Incline your ear to me and hear my need and the call of my distress. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. You are my God. Light up my eyes. Now why does he say light up my eyes? Because the eyes are the primary symbol of vitality in the heart and life. Right? That's why you always say to me when um, I start to feel better after kind of a bout of uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, well, your eyes look better. <laughs> and I just think, man, how bad is it every week? <laughs> because it's the, the eyes are the primary evidence of vitality in the heart and life. Light up my eyes. Give me a greater brightness. Because if you don't give me a greater brightness, in my eyes, signaling His heart and life, a revival. In my heart and life, lest I sleep the sleep of death. In other words, my despair is so great, I fear it's going to kill me. And we all know that despair is only a step away from death. I fear this is going to kill me. And so, consider and answer me, O God. And of course, Spurgeon said about this, he said, despair has a certain kind of claim on compassion. Despair has a certain kind of claim on compassion. What does that mean? Well, it means when you're despairing and you're in distress, what does that invite? Let's say, humanly speaking, what does that invite from other people? It invites their compassion upon your distress. Despair, the reality of despair, has a claim on compassion. And what does God love to do when His people are despairing? To be moved by compassion and to respond to them. Do you see how great our distress is in Egypt? Or how does someone come to know Christ? Oh God, my sins have overwhelmed me and I'm doomed to hell and I have no other hope except Your mercies. Save me. Bearing of sin invites the compassion of God's saving grace. And so, light up my eyes. So he's despairing of life itself. And if he dies, he doesn't want this despair to lead to death because if he dies, here's what my enemies are going to say about me. They're going to say, I have prevailed over him. And they're going to, he says, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Do you think God wants your enemies, which are His enemies, to sit in joy over your fall? Of course not. Of course not. I remember when we were 
when we were, had moved to Bloomington and we were <laughs> trying to plant the church. And there were a lot of days where the whole thing just felt like, I don't think this is going to go. This is very, very early. This is uh, kind of in probably July and August. I don't, think, I don't know if this is going to go. July and August before we actually started meeting in September on, on Sunday mornings. And, um, and I remember the, one of my greatest concerns is I had come to understand how the city in, of Bloomington and Monroe County had kind of chewed up and spit out church plants for decades. And one of the things that I just felt like I should just keep praying was this prayer. Or this stress. I did not want Bloomington to rejoice over another church plant that had come and failed. I just did not want Bloomington to be able to do that. And so I prayed, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. What do you think Bloomington loves more than anything else? It is prevailing over the church of Jesus Christ. That's what Bloomington loves more than anything else. And I want no one rejoicing. It wasn't in distress of my life. This is an application through the life of our church. And whether our church was going to make it or not make it, or whether we were going to actually really organize into a body or not. Of course, some of that pressure was self-imposed, but... Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest foes rejoice because I am shaken. Answer me and deliver me from this, so that isn't the end. Because when enemies... Rejoice over my fall, or my death, or my suffering. They're insulting your name, O God. They will declare that you abandoned me. But don't let them believe that lie, because you have not abandoned me. You have not abandoned me. You have not forgotten me. You will not hide your face from me forever. That's what verse 5 starts to declare with faith. He's trusting, and his heart is turning, that that's not going to be the end. This actually isn't going to go on forever. So he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love, your faithful love covenant love, your love that never fails. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. 
That's what I wrote down. This is why it's all going to be okay. Husband, sometimes the only thing your wife needs to hear from you is it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Now, some of you are going to hear that, and you're going to say that at exactly the wrong time. And it's going to be more like that meme with the dog in the center of the room sitting in the chair, and the whole room's on fire. And it just says in the, in the meme, this is fine. It's going to be okay. And maybe like we should get out of the house and then it will be okay. <laughs> but this is why I know. This is David. I mean, this is, this, is, this is his heart. This is why I know it's going to be okay. I've trusted in your steadfast love. And don't you love that word? There's a word in there I really love. What word do you think is my favorite word in verses 5 and 6? What's your favorite word? Bountifully. Bountifully. See, the way that you think about the benefits of God is you think that what God's mercy is is just staying a step ahead of your sins. Like, here's, the, here's God dealing with me according to my sins, and mercy's right there. The benefits of God are just right there. They barely cross the line. They do cross the line. It is true mercy. Just barely across the line. Does that sound like bountifully? Does that sound like the benefits of God that are bountiful to you? What is leading David to faith? Even though the deliverance hasn't come, he has faith that deliverance is coming. David has faith in the word bountiful. When was the last time you thanked God that He has dealt bountifully with you? It's an important word because it's one of the words that helps motivate the singing in faith that David is actually doing right here. You remember Stephen's illustration about being dungeon people? You know? We're dungeon people. Now the mercy is just over the line. He's dealt bountifully with you. Consider the benefits of God. You realize it is a command of God. Forget not all His benefits. I was fighting with our small group on uh, Thursday night over this. Kind of trying to figure it out myself. but Forget not all His benefits. That is a command of God. And if you are remembering all His benefits using the positive, you're remembering all of His benefits. The benefits of God. He's dealt bountifully with me. You will name them and name them. Name them and name them. Name them and 
name them and name them until you've named them bountifully. So, I want to leave you with this. You understand that in Christ, in your union with Christ, which is really an incredible doctrine that we have not studied yet, and we need to. But in Christ, you understand that God the Father is as pleased with you as he is with his own son. You've heard me say that many times. You know that. You may not believe it, but you know it. In Christ, God is as pleased with you as he is with his own son. In Christ. Now, what is David referencing? He's referencing the steadfast love of God. This is David calling on his God who keeps covenant with him. Anytime you see steadfast love, think covenant. So in Christ, wrestle with this this as you try to think about God's bountiful benefits to you. Think this. In Christ, in Christ, not you can't take these two words out of the sentence. Then it will be heresy. In Christ, you deserve, and I use the word deserve very intentionally. Because it's what will make you most uncomfortable, and uh, um, but if you get it with faith, will actually help you understand what bountiful means. It will push you further into the grace of God and the benefits of God. It's one thing to say in Christ you inherit the benefits that Christ serves. It's a whole other thing to say that in Christ. You deserve. Wrestle with that one, Josh. In Christ, you deserve the benefits of God that Christ deserves. And that's true. And at this point, I'll go to the mat over it. And the reason I'll go to the mat over it is because I want our church to understand what it means for God to deal bountifully with us. I don't know why. It's like this is the perfect illustration. Just made it into the kingdom. Just barely made it. But loved ones, you understand, we don't want to diminish the work of Christ. We don't want to think little of how great the grace of God is. If you're in the, if you're in the kingdom, you know, how long eventually, either in this life, you're going to receive deliverance, or you're going to receive deliverance in the life to come. And these are momentary light afflictions. They are afflictions that last for a little while. Right? The blacksmith puts the fire and hammer to the tool until the work is finished. That's when. That's when. How long? That's when. And if the deliverance comes in the life to come, you're not there because you just barely made it. That's not thinking about the work of Christ. That's thinking about you. 
And if it's reliant on you, you don't even come close to making it. But with Christ, you don't just barely make it. You become worthy, a worthy recipient of the kingdom in Christ who is worthy. I know, it's freaking one of you out. But it is so true. It is so true. Otherwise, what is David saying? He's saying, well, someday, God, you'll get rid of these enemies. So, I'll rejoice and sing about it. And... but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Well, I just wanted to encourage your heart this morning for a while. And I know very well where our church is at. I know very well the kinds of suffering that avail us. And I know very well how long some of them are lasting and how some of them are not going away. And some of them appear as, as if they will never go away. And maybe Psalm 13 needs to be your psalm. Maybe your child is actually going through a particular kind of trial that is continuing to last. And they need Psalm 13 because they will be quick to think that God has abandoned them when really God has actually dealt bountifully with them regardless of how great the Build their faith with Psalm 13. Teach them what an honest life before God looks like. Maybe there's someone you know that needs it. Maybe you're not in this place of sorrows deep and sea billows rolling. Maybe there's somebody you know, though, is. Send them Psalm 13. I send Psalm 13 to people all the time. It's so helpful in so many ways. So go be a blessing. God's truth. You can. Psalm 13. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Oh God, I pray that You would bear fruit by Your Spirit in the hearts of Your church. I know... There's so much pain. I know there's so much uncertainty. There's so many unknowns. I know that there's relational pain. I know that for the sake of Christ, families are in conflict. I know that sickness seems to just be something that keeps plaguing us month by month, it seems, in the life of our church. I know that 
various kinds of ailments that don't seem to go away easily, seem to be commonplace among us, and we just turn to our Lord. We trust you with the wind, Father. Help us to trust you with the wind. Because we really believe that you have dealt bountifully with us. And help us to have faith that it's all going to be okay. You're our Father and you hold us in your hands. and kingdom will come in its fullness and we will be delivered. Because we have trusted in your steadfast love. So we sing, rejoice in your salvation, knowing that it's all going to be okay, even if it doesn't all feel okay right now. Help us, Father. Help us to confess our faith. You have dealt bountifully. We come to you with our complaints, and as we call on you to revive our hearts, as we ask you to Deliver us from our enemies on every side. Your word says that the afflictions of the righteous are many, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We praise you that this is true. We praise you that you have not been capricious, but generous in bounty with your benefits. And may we remember everyone. Give thanks. Amen.